1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and this week I have a quick and dirty tip about how many spaces to put after a colon, a meaty middle about how Shakespeare used prepositions, and a tidbit about what the British mean when they call something a treat. And now, your quick and dirty tip. After my podcast explaining why we now put one space after a period at the end of a sentence, Rebecca wrote in to ask how many spaces go after a colon Just as with the period, it used to be common to put two spaces after a colon, but now most style guides that address the matter—for example, the Chicago Manual of Style—recommend using one space after a colon. And that was your quick and dirty tip. Put one space after a colon, not two. Next, for your meaty middle, I have an excerpt about Shakespeare and how he used prepositions from David Thatcher's book, Saving Our Prepositions there's a scholarly consensus that Shakespeare contributed about 1,800 words and phrases to the English language. Most of his lexical innovations were nouns, for example, addition, assassination, bedroom, discontent, investment, luggage, moonbeam, radiance, watchdog, and zany, verbs: arouse, besmirch, donate, grovel, impede, negotiate, submerge, undervalue, and widen. And adjectives, abstemious, bloodstained, deafening, equivocal, fashionable, jaded, lonely, obscene, sanctimonious, and unreal. A few adverbs also figure as products of his inventiveness— For example, abjectly, rightly, unaware, and vastly. But he did not add one single preposition to the 50 or so which already existed in his time. They had been in existence for centuries, and he made use of all of them, with a few exceptions, though some of these he employs as other parts of speech. Alongside, across, amidst, around, atop, inside, and outside. He never uses "onto," a word first recorded in 1715. In fact, as is the case with the English language in general, prepositions, together with articles, pronouns, and conjunctions, are the most frequently used parts of speech. Of the first 16 most frequently used words in Shakespeare, five are prepositions. After the, first place, and, which is second place, and I, third place. They are to, fifth place, of, sixth place, in, tenth place, for, fourteenth place, and with, sixteenth place. Not a single noun, adjective, or adverb appears in the first 50 of Shakespeare's most frequently employed words, and only four verbs, be, have, do, and are, as well as will, if you realize it also gets counted as a noun. Because language in Shakespeare's time was still in a state of flux, authors were able to more or less at liberty to opt for any preposition they fancied. For example, the verb repent could be followed by at, for, in, of, or over. You could repent at, repent for, repent in, repent of, or repent over something. The very meanings of prepositions differed. As Blake wrote in his book, Shakespearean Language, An Introduction, quote, In fact, it is a characteristic of the various prepositions at an earlier period of the language that they all had a much wider range of meanings than we're accustomed to today. There were, in the Elizabethan period, fewer prepositions in any case, so each had to serve a wider function. As we've increased the number of prepositions by employing phrases and present participles in this role, So we've been able to restrict the range of meaning that each one has. Since meanings were so variable, there was no sense of fixed or proper usage. No rule could be broken, no idiom transgressed, because there were no formal or formalized standards to be violated. Shakespeare had the good fortune to live at a time well before stern, fuddy-duddy grammarians had imposed their unbending notions of absolute correctness on the language. On the English language, that is. Grammarians there were, but they were interested in the morphology and syntax of only the ancient languages of Greek and Latin, languages which Shakespeare had drummed into him while attending his Stratford-upon-Avon grammar school— and not, according to Ben Jonson entirely successfully. Two passages of his plays may well express a lingering resentment at the labors he was compelled to undergo. One is the scene in The Merry Wives of Windsor, in which Sir Hugh Evans, the Welsh parson, tests a hapless boy, William Page, on his knowledge of Latin grammar, especially on the declension of nouns. William's knowledge turns out not to be impressively extensive. The other passage is a speech by the leader of a popular uprising, Jack Cade, after he's just arrested a member of the aristocracy and threatens to have him beheaded for manifold crimes and misdemeanors, leveling the following charge, "...thou hast most traitorously corrupted the youth of the realm, in erecting a grammar school. It will be proved that to thy face that thou hast men about thee, that talk of a noun and a verb, in such abominable words as no Christian can endure to hear. Many of the prepositions Shakespeare employed have the same meaning or meanings as they do today, above, along, below, beyond, concerning, despite, during, except, accepting, inside, round, till, underneath, and until and therefore don't pose any problems of understanding. But many of his common prepositions have meanings not in currency nowadays. Examples are against, at, by, for, of, out, to, and with, each of which can be assigned eight different obsolete or current meanings or more it's regrettable that many editions of Shakespeare text make little or no attempt to gloss these deceptively simple words satisfactorily. For readers to be informed that to means compared to can assist enormously in the task of understanding. According to Blake, quote, prepositions are important words which can modify the sense of a clause and so need to be interpreted correctly, unquote. This is especially true of prepositions now regarded as archaic or obsolete, again, in the sense of against, betwixt, cross, C-R-O-S-S-E, which meant across, mauger, which meant in spite of, sans, which meant without, sith, S-I-T-H, which meant since, and withal, an emphatic form of with when occurring at the end of a sentence. As if the prepositions he inherited weren't short enough, Shakespeare complicated matters by contracting them even further. So of becomes a, as in time a day. From becomes fro, now obsolete, though we still use it in the idiom to and fro. In becomes simply I or apostrophe I, especially before the word the. Before becomes for, and over becomes or, O apostrophe E-R, or even or-o-r-e. Perhaps because they were both commonly abbreviated to apostrophe-o, the prepositions on and of were frequently confused. Shakespeare sometimes felt the need to dispense with prepositions entirely. In Hamlet, for is omitted before me in fear-me-not, meaning fear-for-me-not, and during is omitted before which in the line, which time she changed snatches of old lauds. Meaning, during which time she changed snatches of old lauds. Fortunately, the definitions listed in David and Ben Crystal's book, Shakespeare's Words, provide, in parentheses, the modern preposition, whenever it's different from one of Shakespeare's uses. And that was an excerpt from David Thatcher's book, Saving Our Prepositions, which I included here with permission from the author. The chapter goes on to list and explain the many prepositions used in Shakespeare.
0: Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands,
1: great prices.
0: That's why you rack.
1: Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time then right now to get started, for a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for fifty percent off. Is it RosettaStone.com/grammar? That's fifty percent off, unlimited access to twenty-five language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your fifty percent off at RosettaStone.com/grammar today. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean. On to the tidbit about what the British mean when they call something a treat. In the United States, we consider a treat something pleasant and unexpected. A pint of ice cream at the end of a long day, or a surprise trip to the pool on a hot weekend, that's a treat. In the United Kingdom, however, the expression has a different meaning. In the UK, people use a treat to mean that someone has done something especially well, They might say that a footballer played a treat, for example, or that a cup of tea went down a treat. This use was first spotted in Britain as early as 1898, and it continues to this day. A 2006 episode of Doctor Who, the British science fiction series, uses the term. After placing human brains inside robot bodies, a lab assistant reports to an evil scientist on his progress they've grafted on a treat these have, he says. He means that the brains have grafted onto the metal bodies very well. A 2014 Daily Telegraph story shows how frequently the term is used when discussing fashion. The story features a slideshow of Princess Kate Middleton's fashion hits and misses. One entry reads like this, Kate eschewed shamrock green for this Catherine Walker coat her lock & co hat matched its rich chocolate hue a treat, as did the Irish guard's brooch that belonged to the Queen Mother. Here's another enthusiastic entry. We loved everything about the double-breasted mulberry coat Kate chose for her last engagement. Its powerful pink hue and flattering hemline ticked all the right boxes and topped off the Duchess's slew of stylish maternity outfits a treat. In all of these cases, you could replace a treat with very well. Instead of saying Kate's hat matched her coat a treat, you could say that it matched it very well. So if you'd like to give this Britishism a try, just swap out those words. Tell your best friend that her hair color matches her skin a treat. Tell your husband he's cleaned the house a treat. Or tell your lunch lady that today's meal looks a treat. You might get a glare, or you might just get a thank you. That's your tidbit for today. If you've done something a treat, you've done it extremely well. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find me at quickanddirtytips.com. And I've written seven books about language, including the New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing. If you like this podcast, please check out my books. That's all. Thanks for listening.
0: Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today.
1: Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food service.